morning. I'm uh, Mark, one of the pastors here uh, at West Hills Covenant Church, and um, yeah, excited to be with you today. Do you know Josiah uh, was eight when he became king in Jerusalem? Do we have any eight-year-olds here? I think we might have. If you're eight, could you raise your hand? Okay, you're you're eight. Any seven or nine-year-olds? You want to get in on the fun? Okay. So we've got we've got some potential kings and queens uh, of that time, right? So Josiah was eight years old when he became king of Israel. And in the course of his duties, I don't know how old he was when this happened, but in the course of his duties, uh, there was a temple uh, in Jerusalem uh, to, to the god Yahweh, to Israel's like national god. And so he, uh, you know, it, it was getting run down, and so he had some people go and clean up the temple, and he authorized them to do it, and authorized to, uh, paying those folks. And, and somebody came back, uh, Hilkiah came back, his, uh, one of the people in his court came back and said to him, oh, yeah, we did it, we got everything done in the temple of Yahweh, and we found this book, it's called the Book of the Law. And Josiah said, oh, well, that's interesting. And uh, there wasn't a lot of reading material at the time, and so Josiah uh, had the book read to him, maybe as he's going to sleep or something, and so he's hearing the Book of the Law. It's the book, uh, it's, this is probably referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the book about God's saving story of Israel. Uh, and it had been rediscovered. And then this is how he responded. In 2 Kings 22.11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. Any of you eight-year-olds ever tear your clothes when you're reading a book? Maybe. <laughs> he gave orders to Hilkiah, the priest, uh, Ahikam, son of Saphran, Akabor, son of Micaiah, Saphan, oh, man, Saphan, the secretary of Asaiah, the king's attendant. I always tell Stephanie, just read them fast and confidently. Because <laughs> no, nobody knows how to pronounce it, <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't do that. Uh, and he said, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for Judah about what's written in this book and that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with what's written there concerning us. Josiah becomes king when he's eight. He comes to power in a kingdom of Judah that is the way it is. Uh, and then he hears the book of the law read, and he realizes that things aren't the way that they should be. That what he's used to as normal and natural, what he might think of as old-time religion, the faith of his father and grandfather, uh, is actually not what God has prescribed at all. The, the Asherah pole, uh, worshiping that God, isn't part of it. That actually all those fond memories around the Asherah pole, 
are actually blasphemy and idolatry, right? That all the worship of Baal that he's used to as being normal and natural, that that isn't part of the book. That's not part of the instructions. Uh, That worshiping the sun, moon, and stars, uh, that those are things that God made uh, for us to enjoy, but that there's one God, and that there's one God who gets all of our worship, and that's not the way things had been. And it was a surprise to Josiah to the extent that he tore his clothes and then he realized, oh, this, what, what seems to be good, what seems to be binding us together as a nation has actually, it's destroying us. It's killing us. And radical change needs to happen. So then Josiah, however old he was at this time, has to go and get rid of this idolatrous worship, right? Which involves really changing the fabric of society, really coming hard against some people. Some people don't, you know, like that's their living, right? It's being a priest in this way or that way. And there's resistance and there's turmoil, but Josiah is saying, no, look, it's, it's written. I can imagine that the people uh, that, that were invested in these cults and in this uh, pagan worship, that they were saying, Josiah, why bring all this new stuff? Why bring all these new ways of doing? This is an intrusion uh, into to our traditions, into our nation. You're going to mess everything up by, by forcing us to do all this new stuff. And he's over and over again probably saying, no, this is not new. This is not new. This is the way that it's always had supposed to been. When I was growing up, a pastor's kid, uh, I was immersed in the evangelical culture of Oregon and of America, and I probably would have been suspicious of any church that advertised a value of multi-ethnicity. So that's, that's where we're, we're coming. We're going through different value words that, that we feel like God has laid on our heart through scripture, uh, through the leadership team, and through the Holy Spirit that God has laid on our heart. This is going to be a value of this church. But when I was a kid growing up, hearing the word multicultural or multi-ethnic, so, so there were two kind of streams. One, I did definitely hear that racism is bad and that personal prejudice isn't good. But then I also heard this other stream that when we talk about multiculturalism, that's kind of this like liberal intrusion into Christianity, where the culture is kind of trying to take us away from God. I don't know if anyone else has, has heard those kinds of musings. Uh, that it was a, a political intrusion, and that, it, that multi-ethnicity uh, wasn't really at the heart of what scripture was about. Uh, and so for me, I think as, as I come today to talk about man, what is this value of multi-ethnicity? I want to bear two things in mind. I want to, one, bear in mind, uh, we want to get to the the biblical roots of what we're talking about when we talk about West Hills living into a multi-ethnic identity in the kingdom of God. Um, But we also need to talk about uh, what's grown up in our society in the way that we're used to doing church and the way that we're used to doing faith that's interfered with God's 
plan, what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. Uh, sometimes I think there's things, and this is the way I feel uh, that th- this topic, as I study scripture and as the spirits at work in my life, I have uh, a little bit of, of that Josiah feeling of, oh my gosh, this is not the way things are, but the, the deeper I get into scripture, uh, I realize we've been missing something. There's been something that we've been accustomed to that's out of step with scripture. There's something that we've been accustomed to in our society and in the church that's just not in step with scripture. And so so West Hills, one of our commitments is to to deal with that in a way that's obedient to scripture and honest about our society and our church and the ways that we need to grow and change. And just like Josiah uh, we're probably not greatly equipped for it, right? So Josiah just has the book of the law. I guess he had some people that he could call on who maybe knew what Yahweh worship was all about, right? But he wasn't trained up to deal with this. He was trained up in the way things were. Uh, and I think sometimes when we encounter this, we realize, oh, okay, our tools are limited. Um, but as we read scripture and we want to respond in faith, that we can take those steps uh, and, and ask God to meet us where we are and to give us the tools to go forward. So in the biblical story, uh, ethnicity uh, and multi-ethnicity uh, kind of comes front and center. Uh, in the beginning, when God created humanity, he created mankind In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's this foundational dignity based in simply being human. So it's given by God. And efforts to separate or to classify people into groups as uh, deserving less basic respect or less rights, those fly in the face of how we're created. We're created in the image of God with all the dignity that comes along with that. But in the fall, we see that, uh, that people started to dominate each other. We see it in, in, in gender. Uh, we see brother against brother. And then we begin to see deep ethnic divisions where groups of people form uh, against each other. But the redemptive plan of God from its beginning has always had in mind all nations. When God calls Abraham, Abram, he says, go from your country and from your people, from your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. All peoples of earth. The all peoples, uh, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the, um, which is the Septuagint, it's pontita ethne. That's a, that's a Greek word. Ethne is where we get our word for ethnicity, right? And so it refers to a group, a group of people. So it's sometimes you might think of it as a nation. Uh, the, our concept of race is a little different than that, but, but it's a group of people, a cluster or a nation. And the word ethne is used 992 times in the Old Testament. Did you guys lose me? We're back? Okay. 
992 times in the Old Testament this word ethne is used. I grew up thinking that, uh, that, that there was some kind of an intrusive, intrusive agenda that was possible, that people who are talking about ethnicity uh, were talking about something that's foreign to the Bible. But the Bible is dealing with ethnicity all the time. 992 mentions of this word in the Old Testament and 162 in the New Testament. It's a reality check for me uh, that maybe some of what I brought, was brought up with, uh, there was something missing. When we get into the prophets, uh, where God continues to promise restoration, this is what's written in the book of Micah. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all peoples, all ethne, will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Oh, I lost you guys. You can catch up now. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There's peace and restoration and reconciliation between the nations, between people groups, between ethnicities that scripture is continually holding forth. This is the promise. This is the kingdom. This is what's being lived into. And so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when we get to Acts 2, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on people. That God, God's person is, is coming to be with us. To em, embody uh, God's word. Uh, to see God's kingdom spread. That, that when that happens, the tongues of fire come on the disciples. And they start to speak in languages. The first sign is this get big gathering of people from all nations, all different groups of people, all ethnicities coming, and the barrier of ethnicity being broken down so that the word of God is spoken in their language and that the spirit of God is inhabiting all those language. They're brought in with dignity and with respect. It's not uh, that the Holy Spirit could have easily said, uh, made all the people that were there able to speak Hebrew or Greek and to listen to Peter's words. He could have made them able to understand, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit enabled the speaking of those languages and the pouring forth of God's goodness into all nations. In Acts 6, when there's a division, there's a structural favoritism that's going on where Everybody, if you're familiar with Acts, they started selling all their possessions and giving to those in need. Um, but what happened was that, that the, the Jewish widows were getting provided for in a way that the Greek widows were not. And so some of the Greek widows came up to the disciples and said, hey, we're not getting what we need. And so the disciples take a time out. They pray, and they, they do the, the first kind of biblical affirmative action move, where, 
where they say, oh, this is a problem. We're going to empower the we're going to empower some godly Greek folks to head up the distribution of the food. And it wasn't 50-50. So it had been all the Jewish folks that kind of by default, right? All the Jewish folks ended up having all the power. They were the dominant group in Jerusalem, in the area, and they ended up taking care of their own better than they took care of the Greeks. And so what the disciples do, guided by the Spirit, is to put only Greeks in charge of all the food distribution. Those people who were marginalized and disempowered um, by just kind of the structural, the systemic, maybe the social and language and all those divisions, that they're lifted up and they're put in a place of power. In Paul's letters, we see how, how see Paul's passion. If you notice how passionate Paul is, uh, some of the stuff that you might hear from Paul, you might look sideways at and be like, man, that was really strong, Paul. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but, but Paul is so passionate about tearing down this division that there's, what, there's something at stake that the gospel could just be this little Jewish sect that never fulfills what God has talked about by bringing the good news to all nations. And Paul says, no, you don't have to be Jewish. We, we had a, a whole sermon series on Galatians. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to do the Jewish things and the Jewish customs. You don't have to be culturally Jewish to be connected to God. God's spirit is for everyone. And then finally, uh, in Revelation 7, 9, we get the scene of what it looks like at the end. After this, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Oh, and they were singing, holy, holy, holy. The Bible is so clear on the multi-ethnic nature of God's kingdom. But somehow, uh, we live in a world and in a church culture that that can see this as a threat to our belonging uh, and can see this as something that's foreign and coming from outside of us. And I think uh, one of the things that is imperative for us to do is to look at scripture, to look at our context, and to realize some of the ways that we've gone off track, that our society is formed by ideas uh, that we take for granted as history, maybe we see as just kind of the backdrop, but are actually uh, deeply rooted in, in heresies, in problems with our belief and our thinking that as a church we have to deal with in order to make space for this multi-ethnic kingdom to grow and flourish. It's not something that we can just ignore and hope that by ignoring it, it goes away. The sin of racism um, in Oregon is is deeply real. And we have to grapple with the fact that that things like this, this is a picture from... um, the 1920s, the 1922 meeting of the Portland Ku Klux Klan. We have to grapple with the fact that we live in a place with a history where having the Big Jesus Saves banner in the background uh, with overt racism uh, and exclusion of non-white people in our state 
is the norm. And that that's how our society and our culture and the ground that we stand on was formed and settled. That's why who lives here lives here. That's why who doesn't live here doesn't live here. Uh, at the founding of um, one of the, the biggest shaping um, principles of, of our world today traces back to the doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery is a concept of public international law. It's been upheld by the United States Supreme Court. Um, and it, it's explained uh, and applied and it's a, it's a, it has explained and applied the way colonial powers have laid claims to land belonging to foreign sovereign nations. Under the doctrine of discovery, uh, title to lands lay with gov the government whose subjects traveled to and occupied the territory, whose inhabitants were not subjects of European, a European Christian monarch. So there was this way that as long as you're the subject of a European Christian monarch, if you go to a place that's not occupied by European Christians, well, then you own that place. That place is yours. Uh, you've discovered it. And that principle of international law is still the foundation of property law in the United States today. It's never been overturned. Um, because to overturn it would mean revisiting property, who owns what, going back for centuries. Um, so we've accommodated to it, but it's still the foundation of our property law. And it's built on, um, these, on papal bulls, on doctrine of the church, uh, where popes created different classes of humans based on whether they were European Christian or whether they were not, whether they, uh, they, were, they would be referred to as savages, as incapable of receiving the gospel, some or sometimes capable of receiving the gospel. But in any case, uh, their rights to property weren't recognized uh, because of this connection. It's a heresy uh, that flies right in the face of the fact that all people are created in God's image. And it was expedient at the time uh, to, to make money, to make land work the way that they wanted to. It was expedient at the time for that, and it's shaped our society for centuries, and it's shaped our state for centuries. It has to do with both the settlement of, uh, of native lands and the, um, the taking of property from, from Native Americans, but also the taking of people from other lands to be enslaved in America. From its very beginning, Oregon uh, has also been a place that's deeply affected by this kind of heresy of white Western European supremacy. Um, in 1844, the provisional government of the Oregon Territory passed a law banning slavery. That was good. And at the same time, they required any African-American in Oregon to leave the territory. Not so good. Any black person remaining in the territory of Oregon would be flogged publicly every six months until he or she left. Five years later, there was another law passed 
that forbade free African Americans from entering Oregon. In 1857, Oregon adopted a constitution that banned black people from coming to the state uh, or residing in the state or holding property in the state. During this time, any white male settler could receive 650 acres of land and another 650 if he was married. This was, of course, land taken from Native people. The history of our state, this is a sign from, um, from a window of a Portland restaurant in 1943. Um, sometimes the myth is that that Oregon doesn't have the, the same racism as maybe like the American South. But to realize uh, just how deeply we're shaped by this story uh, that really depends on the heresy of white supremacy. Oregon was founded with this idea that, that white people could create some kind of a nice utopia that didn't have to deal with the problems of race by excluding people who weren't white. When the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments were passed, um, Oregon's laws preventing black people from moving in were overturned. But Oregon didn't ratify the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, until 1973. Actually, it says the, the state ratified the amendment in 1866 and then rescinded its ratification in 1868. Uh, and then came back in 1973. It didn't ratify the 15th Amendment, which gave black people the right to vote until 1959, making it one of only six states that refused to ratify that amendment when it first passed. This is a, a picture of Klan members. Um, this is on the north coast of Oregon. It says, chief Kluxers tell law enforcement officers just what mystic organization proposes to do in the city of Portland. So they're sent out as delegates to talk to law enforcement. Uh, and all of this is uh, a very public and foundational part of our history. This history obviously resulted in a very white state, right? Sometimes we look around and we see the way things are, the way our neighborhoods are, the way our schools are, and we don't realize there's a story behind that. There's a story of why things are the way they are that we've been shaped by. The exclusion laws uh, broadcast very loudly, even when they're overturned by federal law, that Oregon wasn't a place where blacks would be welcomed or comfortable. By 1890, there were slightly more than 1,000 black people in the whole state. By 1920, about 2,000. Um, the city now is known as kind of progressive and weird and, and bike riding. Um, but in an article from The Atlantic, uh, a man named Ed Washington, a longtime Portland resident, says, if you're living here and you decided you wanted to have a conversation about race, you'd get the shock of your life, right? When we're confronted with the racist history, when we're wanting to talk about what it looks like uh, to include, to become uh, multi-ethnic, to welcome neighbors, there is resistance. 
like Josiah, we haven't inherited the structures or the tools to live into obedience of Scripture. Repentance and change is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to involve disruption. Among the challenges that we face as a church, uh, that I face as a, as a white person, is what uh, Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. That living in a world that's constructed to insulate us from racial tension, uh, that would definitely be Oregon, right? Maybe even our, our region and neighborhood of Oregon in particular. That we live in a world that's constructed to insulate us from race, racial tension. So that when we're confronted with issues of race, that white folks, including me, can respond with emotions of anger, fear, and guilt. And that our responses of argumentation or of silence shut down the process of real growth. Have you ever noticed that? That when issues of race come up, um, that, that it's hard to deal with. And, and some of your first reactions might be to dismiss or to argue or to just be silent and walk away. Because a lot of us who have grown up um, white have been insulated from having to deal with this at all. We're not given the tools uh, to equip us to be able to have uh, good conversations. Um, but we have all the responsibility to do just that. We have all the responsibility to live into what we know Scripture says is true about the kingdom of God. Uh, and we're able to do it. And that's, I think this story of Josiah um, is helpful and instructive, at least to me. But when I look up and I see a society and I see a church and, and, and Christian faith tradition that doesn't match up with what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, that a proper response, I'm not going to rip my clothes here, it's just not culturally the same, it doesn't come across the same as when Josiah did it, um, but that we can lament. Some, some of what we need to understand is that the Christianity that we've been brought up with um, has been constructed in a way that doesn't challenge this narrative of white supremacy. So the spiritual tools we have might look like personal sin and personal repentance and forgiveness. Uh, a lot of times when we hear about um, racism, especially when white people hear about racism, we get frustrated thinking, what am I supposed to do? I just want to do the thing that I'm supposed to do to clear myself of personal guilt and so that I can move forward. We don't have the spiritual tools uh, to do what Josiah did, which is just to, to become aware and to lament. There's action that comes too, but to lament and to realize that things are broken in a way that's going to take long, hard, uncomfortable sometimes confrontational work to grow into and to move through. We have to do that, I believe, as a church. Uh, we've been given the scripture in the same way that Josiah has. We've been given the word of God to challenge our assumptions, uh, not just to reinforce our traditions, but to discover it fresh to realize, oh my goodness, where are we that things are so messed up? 
that racial divisions still persist, that our neighborhoods still look so segregated, that our church still looks so segregated, uh, that we have a hard time understanding each other, we have a hard time welcoming each other, we have a hard time loving each other, we have a hard time getting any kind of justice right in our society that, that's equal for all people. Uh, and we have opportunities as the West Hills community to learn to repent and to grow into that. Um, I, I love my spot in these sermon series because I get to do the biblical roots of, of the direction of the value. And then I get to tell you that Stephanie is going to tell you exactly how to do everything <laughs> next, <laughs> next week. <laughs> she, all the solutions, uh, right? But I think, I think we need to realize uh, that our society is so messed up around ethnicity, around race, uh, that, that we absolutely can't afford to ignore it anymore. Uh, we absolutely need to know that it's a muscle that we haven't been taught to exercise. And that doing that and taking steps to do that is going to feel uncomfortable and unnatural. It may not feel like the old-time religion that we're used to, but it's the older-time religion, right? Just like Josiah, it's the older stuff that goes back past the heresies and all the, the idolatry that, that's cropped up. And, and roots us in the foundational story of God. We have a unique opportunity to do that, and we have a unique responsibility to do that, I think, as a church uh, with what we know, uh, with what the information that we have access to in Scripture, in our society, in our, our connection with other churches and the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, in the city of Portland. We have an obligation and an opportunity to do better, to gain a vision. And I think when we do it, the things that, that we miss, uh, the, the changes that seem uncomfortable are actually life. When Josiah realized that worship of Baal and Asherah, right, I, I could see that it would only feel like loss at first to make a change in that. It would only feel like loss and sacrifice and conflict and the whole thing's going to blow up because no one's going to go along with the program, right? It could only felt like threat. But what Josiah realized was that it was bringing destruction, that the sin and the problems was bringing the destruction of the, of the country, of the nation, of God's people. And that by doing things uh, in accordance with scripture, by taking these uncomfortable steps, there's opportunity to unleash the life of the kingdom. There's opportunity to grow and flourish, to enjoy the voice of God from all nations, to participate in that great assembly uh, of people in every tongue and tribe and nation uh, as, as learners, as recipients uh, as seeing the image of God reflected through all different peoples, languages, and colors. It's a muscle that we can exercise by God's grace. It's repentance that we're called to and that we can do, and it gives life and freedom and healing in ways that we may not even know we had missed. I'm convinced that we just often don't know what we're missing uh, by not fully engaging in the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. We have no idea what kind of cultural um, 
assumptions and problems will creep up and get modified as we come into contact with God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is a good journey that our good God is leading us on. And, and it's my prayer that we, we can keep stepping forward and trust and faith as we continue to take steps into being a multi-ethnic church, into being a church that is ready to receive and learn from all ethnicities and, and different traditions and perspectives on the faith that come with that, um, but also a church that is active in dismantling these heresies of racism and of white supremacy um, that form our community. Um, it's an exciting journey, if not intimidating. So let's pray for God's provision. God, we need you to guide us and lead us. We're convinced by your word that you are good, that you're the God of all nations, that you have something good for us here. Uh, we're, um, we mourn to see just how far our society, our churches, our church cultures have strayed away from what you've called us to. Would you meet us in our mourning, in our lament, in our confession? Would you root out the sin of racism, of white supremacy from our hearts and minds? Would you give us honesty to come back again and again and just realize uh, where you've called us, where we need to continually come before your cross. Give us a vision for your future, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.